from your favorite podcasters on our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 22, Godzilla 1985. fans and kaiju lovers and welcome to kaiju vision radio a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value i'm brian scherschel and i'm nathan marchand and in this episode we will be covering the well 1985 film godzilla 1985 there is no alternate title no i mean no there are i have some but they're uh they're profane, so. I'm <laughs> well, and yeah, and uh, I tried to invite our our friends Mike, Tom, and Crow to join us on this episode, but they're kind of busy, so they turned me down. Sorry, folks. Yeah, I think we we both think about the same way about this one. <laughs> our related topics for this episode are the Japanese asset price bubble, Japan Airlines Flight One Twenty Three, and the Chernobyl nuclear accident. But first, like every episode, we will do a short description of this film because it is such a different film than our previous film that we discussed the return of Godzilla. Take it away, Nate. You're listening to Kaiju vision radio. Godzilla is a ferocious force of nature. It's stated that no corpse was found 30 years before insinuating. This is the original Godzilla. He seeks nuclear energy to consume by attacking a Soviet submarine and a Japanese nuclear power plant. He attacks Tokyo because he's, quote, searching for something, end quote. Stephen Martin, a cynical old newspaper man, is brought in as a consultant by the Pentagon after Godzilla sinks a Soviet submarine. The intrepid reporter Goro Maki finds the hardworking fisherman Hiroshi Okamura aboard the Yahata Maru and tries to break the story, but it is censored by the government. Naoko, an intern working for Dr. Hayashida, is Hiroshi's intelligent and loving sister. Dr. Makoto Hayashida is a brilliant biologist studying Godzilla because his parents died in the creature's first rampage. The human and kaiju plotlines are unified in this version since all the small subplots unrelated to Godzilla are deleted. As in the Japanese version, the JSDF assaults Godzilla with fighter jets, tanks, rocket launchers, and rifles, but Godzilla destroys them all. Hyper laser cannons do nothing against him. The Super X attacks Godzilla with flares and cadmium missiles, rendering him unconscious. He's revived by an electrical storm generated by a stratospheric nuclear blast and destroys the Super X. The problem is solved when Dr. Hayashida activates his magnetic transmitter, attracting Godzilla to the mouth of Mount Mihara, where bombs are detonated to create an eruption. Godzilla falls into the volcano. The original screenplay by Shuichi Nagahara had new content added by Tony Randell, Lisa Tomei, and Straw Wiesman, all of whom were uncredited. Originally, they intended to turn the film into a dubbed parody a la What's Up Tiger Lily, but this was scrapped because Raymond Burr was displeased with the idea. Regardless, the needless additions oversimplify the story while contributing little or nothing other than often politically motivated alterations. The original footage showcases what special effects director Teriyoshi Nakano considered his best work in the genre, using soupmation, animation, miniatures, and a 16-foot robotic Godzilla. However, some of the special effects footage, most notably the shots of a life-size replica of Godzilla's foot, were deleted. 
The re-editing also harms the excellent pacing created by director Koji Hashimoto. The new footage directed by R.J. Kaiser was filmed in three days on a $200,000 budget, including a $50,000 salary for Raymond Burr. The dark tone of the original cut is retained, but it's undermined by stupidly inappropriate jokes and blatant product placement in the American footage. It attempts, keyword, attempts, to present extraordinary events in a realistic fashion coupled with minor sci-fi elements. This isn't an experimental film since Japanese movies like Godzilla 1954 and, to a much larger extent, Varan the Unbelievable were re-edited like this for American release. The film reinforces the style of Godzilla King of the Monsters by deleting footage and replacing some of it with newly filmed scenes featuring American actors. Unlike that film, this footage is written and executed poorly. There are also mild reinforcements of style from the 1933 King Kong. New World Pictures intended this film to be a sequel to Godzilla King of the Monsters. Being a Roger Corman company, they bought the distribution rights and filmed new scenes on the cheap to maximize their chances of making an easy profit. Like with King of the Monsters, the result is a sanitized film barely a step above 1980s B-movie schlock. The film was released on August 23rd in, you guessed it, 1985. It grossed $509,502 in its opening weekend, eventually making a measly $4,116,395. Since New World Pictures' total expenditure for the film was $3.2 million, it was still profitable, especially with home media sales. However, it was critically panned and is generally disliked by the fan base. Despite 10 minutes of new footage being added, this cut is 16 minutes shorter than the Japanese version. The alterations suck much of the political content out of the film and all but remove the Japanese view of the Cold War, which is almost entirely replaced by Reagan-era anti-Soviet sentiment with several controversial changes, such as the Soviet missile launch being re-edited as a deliberate act instead of an accident. New World Pictures saw the original film as a B-movie and treated it as such. This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part two of the podcast, we do an opinion and discussion section. So about this movie, it's what I would call the more hostile version of King of the Monsters. Maybe between these two, the way. Um, I, yeah. The way. The way. <laughs> no, I, not necessarily hostile toward. Well, I guess in some ways hostile toward the Japanese, but uh-huh. definitely so I mean, hostile toward the Russians. That too, but it's a more hostile movie than our previous. Uh, American entry that was really different, which would be King of the Monsters. But uh, King of the Monsters was more about removing the Japanese nationalism from it, but this was more about like reverse nationalism. Yeah. <laughs> that, got, that got applied to this. And so it's a meaner, uh, leaner version of, of what we seen, what we saw before. And I actually like King of the Monsters a lot compared to this. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the way that this, Story starts out though is that when they made Return of Godzilla, uh, the studio took it to the United States and tried to get a big movie studio in the United States to distribute it and put it in the theaters. And they asked for um, a lot. It, it was probably it was pricey. It was about what if it, if that movie was made in an an American studio, it's essentially a price that was. 
to the scale of the American movie studios, what they typically dealt with. That didn't work, though. And all of those big studios and distributors passed on it, which is unfortunate because this is such a, a special movie. It's so serious at times, yet it's also entertaining and, and cool and just it's such a special entry in this series. But at the same time, you can tell that what, what the, do you, the, you can tell that the filmmakers were uh, and the studio were definitely confident that they had made something good. They put a lot of work into it. They put a lot of money into it, too. They made it look nice. They got a good story. Fantastic music. And it's the best attempt that they had to reintroduce Godzilla to the world, right? And then yeah. all, all, all these studios pass on, and then this crappy one picks it up, and then we have a huge disappointment. And, and the Japanese were trying to infuse seriousness and gravity back into the Godzilla series. And then it comes here, and it gets mixed in with Dr. Pepper ads and stupid comedy and Godzilla versus Bambi. It's, it's a tale of two worlds. This is so messed up. America is used to the silly movies that help put the series so much in trouble, so to speak, in the first place. And Japan was wanting to get over all the silliness. So they were going in one direction, and then this studio is going in the opposite direction. And well, it made, I think, Japan sort of look like, oh, it's not somebody that, it's not a country that we take seriously, necessarily. Well, and it wasn't just the product placements in the new American footage. There were, there was a, an ad that was being shown. Uh, at the time when the movie was released that was for Dr. Pepper and it had this very silly looking Godzilla I guess, suit actor going around doing stuff and he's putting on sunglasses and drinking a giant uh -huh. can of Dr. Pepper. I mean, the commercials are amusing. I will say that. If you ever look yeah, them up on YouTube, yeah. yeah, they're entertaining. But it fed into, I think, the perception people had of this movie in particular. Yeah, so all this seriousness just runs up against a big wall and there's nothing that really the creators of this movie could have done at that point. So not a situation I would have wanted, but at the same time, what did these studios, what were they going to do with this movie? Cause this movie is so different and it's full of all the, the government stuff and the, it's, you know, it's, a, it's such a unique movie. It is, but and like, I think if you're, if you're here in this country, how do you keep it completely as it's, if you didn't change a thing, how would you market it? I think you probably could have marketed it as maybe as a science fiction thriller of some kind, perhaps. If you're trying to appeal to a wide audience. Is there a movie equivalent to this in America? Involving kaiju? No, Return of Godzilla. Any kind of story like this. Nothing's really coming to mind. I mean, I, I, this was before... The you know the Tom Clancy adaptations were a thing, and that's about the only thing I can think of that comes even remotely close. And nothing involving kaiju. No, because all the kaiju movies in America were not like this. No, in fact, I think at this point, the most recent American kaiju movie that you could talk about is uh, it's called Q the Winged Serpent from the early eighties. And that's one I haven't seen yet, but it has David Carradine in it as a police detective, I believe. But that isn't nearly close to what this movie is, my understanding. No. And it's it's just such a different movie. And it was 
partially this movie was partially made for a Japanese audience too, which is even trickier. And so how do you adapt this movie? But they didn't go the King of the Monsters route with this. They decided to make fun of it and they decided to really reverse what a lot of this movie was trying to do, really turn it upside down. Yeah, and that's that's the part of this that that bugs me the most about it. We talked about in our King of the Monsters episode that version had a reason to exist. It's an outdated reason now and it makes that version of the movie very anomalous. Right. But it's still understandable and I think the people who were working on that had seen the original movie and liked it. They were just trying to figure out how to make it palpable for an American audience at that time. This thing, as far as I care, has no reason to exist and was made by people who didn't care. Did it make more people want to see more Godzilla movies that have been released before this? I don't know. Probably maybe not. maybe for the hard, you know, the hardcore Godzilla fans that were here and maybe for the sake of nostalgia. But for people who hadn't seen a Godzilla movie in a really long time, probably this not. doesn't really improve your reputation of the reputation of Godzilla in the light of viewers, I wouldn't think. No. And as we mentioned in part one, this version of the movie did not do well with critics and did so poorly with critics that, you know, you've heard of the, like the Razzie Awards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they've actually been around a little bit longer than I thought. I thought they were something that cropped up in the last 20 years, but they were around in the mid 80s. And this version of the movie was nominated for two Razzie Awards, including Worst Supporting Actor for Raymond Burr. And worst new star for the new computerized Godzilla. <laughs> so the big robot thing that they were using to do the special effects. And it was also nominated for what was called a Stinker's Bad Movie Award for Worst Picture. And of course they didn't see the Japanese version. They saw this version. Yep. Yeah, so they probably didn't really get in on the fact that the what the other version was trying to do and what all the different changes were. You're not going to sit down and go through all that when you're figuring out a Razzie Award. But we did have a nonconformist uh, amongst all of them. Joel Siegel. Remember that guy? Mm -hmm. Good Morning America. He said, and this was something that was used in a bunch of the newspaper ads, and it was on the VHS box covers and everything. He said in his review of this movie that it's, quote, hysterical fun, the best Godzilla in 30 years. And I read that and I think, what? What? <laughs> fun in what kind of way though the probably the godzilla versus megalon brand of fun because it wasn't fun for me yeah it wasn't fun for me either exactly though it's the, it's the kind of godzilla versus megalon kind of godzilla fun yeah it's the cheesy schlocky unplug yourself yeah. from reality and just get immersed into that yeah I feel like Mr. Siegel didn't understand what Godzilla movies were about. Well, this this is just not, like the absolute worst movie to try to do that to. Because it's so serious and has all this anti-nuclear sentiment and Japan expressing itself in the international community in its own voice. And this movie was made mostly for Japanese people, I should think. And so trying to get this over and translate it into something like Godzilla versus Megalon. That is such a stretch to make. It's easier to make some of these previous mo movies from the seventies. I would say be easier to 
to make it hysterically fun out of those. Oh, yeah. Rather than do it with this, but it's like a continuation of the 70s. And so here we have Japan trying to create a new series of Godzilla movies and rebooting the franchise. And over here, it's like, la, 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 we're not listening. (laughs) We're going to bend this thing as far as we can and and turn it into Godzilla versus Megalon again. (laughs) I feel lucky since I saw the original version of this movie before 1985. I yeah, was, you're lucky. I feel very special having been able to do that because the seeing the bastardization first really changes the way your mind really thinks of the original. Yeah, unfortunately, I grew up on this version because a lot of people did. Yeah, because this, this was the Megal- only one I could Megalon. get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Brian, remember last week when we talked about the Japanese version, and you asked, "Where did the extra 15 minutes come from?" Well, with this, they took away the 15 minutes, didn't they? I was about to say, guess what? (laughs) They took those 15 minutes out. (laughs) So what all did they cut? I mean, I I have a good idea of it, but... Uh, They cut a lot of stuff out of this. Uh, I I saw the complete list of things that were were trimmed or deleted. It's a long list of stuff. It's a long list of stuff. Uh, The thing that... The part that suffers the most is a lot of the political content gets removed. So, So, like... The the monsters. Yeah. So, well, what I mean, political content, I'm thinking specifically in the original version, the prime minister is a major character. And in this, his presence is very much reduced. It's almost minimized. Yeah, I would say that. So on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. So I think he's the one who suffers the most in uh, in the changes, I would say. He's barely a character in this. Yeah. So like King of the Monsters, we get a lot of the talkier scenes over with more quickly and then we get the it's an effort to get the action more packed in without as much lull in between them that i can understand when somebody recuts a movie but this goes so utterly far that goes places that i would never go yeah when i was watching this one the after watching the japanese version the pacing felt completely off to me i it just it felt too fast. I felt like I was missing things. Yeah, the logical progression got parts taken out of it. Yeah, and that really annoys me because I have actually heard some other fans defend this version by saying that uh, the pacing is better, and I completely disagree with them. Because you can make something quick, uh, you can give something quicker pacing, but that doesn't necessarily make it better. It just feels like it's in a rush and not everything. That needs to be not all the plot points that need to be hit before you get to the action get are hit along the way. It's not quite the same thing as only seeing a certain percentage of a painting when you go into a museum, but in a way, it kind of is. Mm-hmm. That's not a bad analogy. You saw that they almost had Leslie Nielsen in this, right? They did. <laughs> they considered hiring Leslie Nielsen for uh, that part instead of bringing Raymond Burr back, right? Oh, crap. <laughs> that would have been absolutely insane. I love Nelson Nielsen. God rest his soul. But uh, I don't really know. I mean, that would have been hardcore comedy. That, that I'm happened. guessing that and, was... And then they would have left in all of the other stuff that they took out of this. Because Raymond Burr was able to rescue a lot of this movie for us. It could have been a lot worse. This whole movie could have. I'm guessing they were considering Mr. Nielsen when they were originally doing, going to do the What's Up Tiger Lily version of it. You see, 
I've not seen What's Up Tiger Lily, and I don't think you have no. either. I did see a movie that was similar to What's Up Tiger Lily that came out much sooner. It came out when I was, I think when I was in high school, might have been early college. It was called Kung Pao Enter the Fist. You remember that uh-huh. one? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Same sort of idea. Take an Asian film. In this case, I think it was a Hong Kong action movie from the 70s. Nobody knew what it was. And it got redubbed over. They filmed additional scenes to pad it in there to create a completely different story. They had a couple of new actors, including the director of the film, writer, director. But they even went a step further because at this point they had developed computer technology that let them actually insert the actors into the old footage, which was kind of clever, I will admit. But the new dialogue and the story are just so incredibly random and stupid. <laughs> yeah, a lot like this. Yeah. I know it was worse it was even worse than this actually. <laughs> I just it made no sense. It was just total randomness. It annoys me that I actually have a friend who loves Kong Pao because he keeps referencing it all the time and it drives me nuts. It was like that movie is so stupid. But I I'm glad they did they were uh, they were stopped from doing that because Raymond Burr understood what Godzilla was about and he wouldn't be involved in the project if they were going to treat it like that. They were about to and he was able to intervene. Yeah. He doesn't save it, unfortunately. Completely, anyway. Right, because he's, he's not the producer or the director or any of this. Yeah. So he's, he's not the guy editing this. Movies that are bad, I think they're way better if they're actually trying... And they're incompetent, as opposed to a movie that tries intentionally to be bad. There's an, I think there's a huge difference between those two things. Yeah, you, there's. I, sin- I love the incompetence. Yeah, there's I'm sincerity all on board with yeah. their incompetence. Yeah, and laughing at incompetence, per, on purpose incompetence. That's not incompetence. This is something totally different. Yeah, because with, at least with the unintentional incompetence. You can detect the sincerity. You realize these were people who honestly really wanted to make something good. They just lack the talent and or resources to do it. Like Manos, Hands of Fate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Manos, Manos. Yeah. Wow. They say Manos in the movie. I know. But everybody called it Manos. Or Manos. I've heard it That's pronounced Manos, Manos as well. I think it said Manos in the in the movie and during the riffing part of the movie. Oh yeah. If you know if you don't know what we're talking about, listeners, it's probably the most popular episode ever of Mystery Science Theater three thousand. Yeah, it's way up there in bad movies. I would say like right along with movies like The Room or Ben and Arthur. Anyway, there's there's a big difference between intentionally bad and incompetent bad. This movie tries to be intentionally bad, right? It's just schlocky and just this version yeah yeah i don't know it, it's it's really weird because well they, the they, tone's they, really kind of all over the place the, the dubbing is all over the place it's really lazy and the voices are silly the voices it, all sound the same it's like not I, but, amateurish it's just bad and it seemed and that's one thing i think is intentionally bad and then the dubbing like oh my gosh they, they, they they're coming into the prime minister's office and they act, when they address him as sorry, the you know it's dubbed in, sorry. <laughs> and it's awesome. Oh. oh my god! Oh, I have, I had forgotten that one because I don't see this movie very often for 
obvious reasons. I see the Japanese version and I want because I want to see the whole movie because it's awesome. That was especially lazy, I guess would be the word, but intentionally bad would be. I would I would say that's one thing that goes towards the indictment of this movie being pretend you know on purpose bad. In case you can't tell, we don't like this movie. It's, it's garbage. I just don't like it. I love Raymond Burr. Let's talk about him now because he was one of the people that helped save it from what it, from the really bad movie it could have been. In fact, honestly, I think he's the only part of this movie I like. Same here. And it, it's really weird. It's one of the things that <laughs> I, I felt like when I was watching it, knowing that he refused to be involved if they were not going to treat the material, treat Godzilla with any sort of respect. There were points where his interactions with those other American actors, I mean, Burr is obviously miles ahead of them in in talent. He makes them all look like chumps. He's that much better of an actor. But there were points where I felt like he was, it was almost like a metaphor. You know, the other American actors are New World Pictures, and then there's him, and they're trying to be stupid and silly, and he's trying He's to be serious in place yeah in fact one of my favorite hilarious scenes, one of my favorite scenes with him is when that stupid young guy i hate that young guy <laughs> what was so the annoying. accent that the i can't place yeah i'm not from the south I, i've never heard that accent before though i don't know yeah i love the scene where because they're, they're watching godzilla's attack and it's right after the the nuclear missiles have detonated in the atmosphere and it's messing with their their TV feed, the radiation, and all that. Yeah. yeah, the I'm I'm assuming it's probably supposed to be an EMP. It's messing with their mm-hmm. with their television feed, and the guy just young guy just walks right over to Raymond Burr and says, "Oh, don't worry. This is the this always happens after a nuclear detonation. Totally harmless." And then Raymond Burr just scowls at him and says. It's almost like he's saying, boy, uh, yeah, and tells let me fact. tell you about something that happened in 1962. You knocked, snapper. Yeah, knocked out you know, electricity all the way from Australia to California. Right, <laughs> and then he just gives that look like, oh. But yeah, we, Raymond Burr gives a lot of these characters a, a look every once in a while or a, oh, really? You don't know the whole story. He needs to be sitting on a like some plush recliner in a the living room telling stories like on Christmas and <laughs> uncle, uncle Raymond Burr is telling stories about the good old days of King of the monsters. <laughs> Do you think he, you think his grandson that we see briefly has probably heard all of his Godzilla stories by now. He's probably like, Oh yeah. They? Grandpa Steve. He's, he's talking about that giant lizard again. Uh, and obviously the stories have not made an effect on him because what's he doing when we see him? He's playing with a giant robot dinosaur toy and crushing things yeah. with it. I think that was the the American filmmakers' attempts at, I don't know, dramatic irony? Symbolism? Maybe? I don't think they were that artful. Although, I will say the the first scene that we that Burr is in, I actually liked the transition with it i did too because they're you know it's showing the scene from the japanese version when godzilla is coming out of the island and he's supposed to be attacking the fishing vessel and then they let the sound kind of carry over a little bit and it's this close-up of raymond burr's eyes with his hand in front of him and he slowly takes mm-hmm. him down and it then you see him sitting there alone in his office and he's got like like apparently he wrote a book about his experiences 
in Tokyo in 54. Right, he's and, looking out the window in the storm, right? Yeah. yeah. And it really gives this impression that even though he... He, he knows something's going on. Like, he can sense that something's going on because of his past experiences. <laughs> it's like Yoda. Yeah, like Yoda. <laughs> I sense a great disturbance in the Force. It's like when some of these characters in the Godzilla movies are like, they're like, I sense Godzilla's presence. He's sensing that a Godzilla movie is beginning and that he must yeah. be involved in it. <laughs> well, and, and the thing is, is that on paper, the idea of bringing this character back actually sounds like it could be interesting and the introduction scene here has a has a nice setup uh-huh. and I, it, it's pro- one of the less annoying scenes that yeah inserted in here yeah and but the problem is is it makes no good on any of that setup because no. they do they literally do nothing with him he has no purpose to be in this movie i don't even understand He's exposition yeah He's i don't exposition even, dispenser i don't even understand why the pentagon is bringing him on this that's like because <laughs> that like, the, the general says oh we need an expert who knows about this we're not going to go talk to a scientist who's been studying all this stuff no we'll yeah. bring in the journalist who just happened to be the only american there well, of course it's- you're just gonna it's it's movie land and and we're making a crappy version of a great movie and and so we gotta none of this stuff matters they all just throw it together and expect us just to take anything that they're giving us yeah and i'm sitting here thinking you know what you probably wouldn't have been able to work this into work this into it but you could have done something interesting where you know he knows something's going on maybe he goes back to tokyo that's the problem they were you know, tries to get involved they or weren't something, interested but... in doing anything interesting yeah that was the problem also another from that scene that there is a bit of a call there's a callback to it later is the that ivory dragon right that works as a nice interest yeah that works as a nice interesting symbol cuz i could see Mr. Martin, after his experiences there, probably keeping something like that with him as kind of a remembrance of those events. So I'll give him credit for that. They were trying, at least at a few rare points, to be interesting and symbolic and all cinematic. Of it, all and of it all centered that. around Raymond Burr. Yeah. It makes, which it, makes yeah. me wonder if a lot of it was him doing input. I wonder, really, especially like the scene in where he's in uh where he's looking out the window where we first see him. I almost guess that he wrote that. Maybe he, maybe somebody was just told the basics of what to write and then created a, a little script from that. I mean these aren't these little scenes they're like little scenelets. There's little tiny scenes thrown together in various places. We don't get the first one until 18 minutes in and that's when I start rolling my eyes. So, what does Raymond Burr, what does Stephen Martin do really do in this movie at least before he was a surrogate for the audience and he was learning things with the audience and explaining things to the audience here all he really does is be curmudgeonly and say oh no you're not gonna stop godzilla he's just going to kill you all why are you even bothering yeah sort of a character that's like back in the old days yeah well what what really gets to me is i'm not even sure anyone at New World actually watched King of the Monsters because the general asked him, how did they stop Godzilla 30 years ago? They did it. And he's just all like, he doesn't really say anything. The oxygen destroyer is not brought up. There's even a point where it seemed like 
he was going to say something about the oxygen destroyer, but the general interrupts him. So now it's like he's not going to tell him out of spite. <laughs> you know, it's just like, was the oxygen destroyer top secret? Nobody was talking about that. I, I don't understand. So the whole, even though this is supposed to be a sequel to King of the Monsters, they're not talking about how Godzilla got stopped in the first place. It's just, did you guys do your homework? Seriously? No, that's the <laughs> point. And so none of this, none of any of this matters to them, especially. It, it mattered definitely in Return of Godzilla, but now is we're in we're in nobody cares land. And this is most telling when <laughs> when Burr drops the line thirty years ago. They didn't find a corpse. And I just yeah, wanted I know. Well, what's up with this? And I wanted to yell at the screen and say, That's because it disintegrated. <laughs> well, but then we get the bones back later though. Yeah, but th- that was later. Yeah. In a completely different continuity. <laughs> it was dumb. I, I was when I watched that part, I was like, ooh. I don't care. Usually that's in the context of a horror film or something. Well, there was no body found. So now, in the interest of trying to prolong the more positive section of this episode, just a wee bit longer, I'm going to talk about the one thing, the one thing that I do think this version got better. And it's not because of New World. It's actually because of Raymond Burr. And that is when you get to the ending, when Godzilla is falling into the volcano, you end up having something that's Honestly, not unlike the dubbed version of Rodan, where you have this very atmospheric narration that is added that I think enhances that final scene. The lamentation on uh, Godzilla. Yeah. And it's interesting, Brian, that you brought up how you, you like to think of this as really the final film in the Showa era. Because when I was watching it with this narration from Raymond Burr. And by the way, the speech that he gives was not written by New Line. It was written by him, mm-hmm. which explains why everything else seems awful, but this really sticks out as being good. And I was looking at it, I was thinking, you know what? If this was the final film in the Showa era, the way it, it, having Burr come back and being this callback character. Yeah, bookend. It's a bookend. It's a eulogy for Godzilla. And it's the only thing even close to a thematic statement in this entire film. And it's so good, in fact, I have the transcript of it, and I'm going to read it all for you. Although I'm probably not going to sound nearly as cool as Mr. Burr, who has that very nice, deep, manly voice. Nature has a way, sometimes, of reminding man just how small he is. She occasionally throws up the terrible offspring of our pride and carelessness to remind us of how puny we really are in the face of a tornado, an earthquake, or a Godzilla. The reckless ambitions of man are often dwarfed by their dangerous consequences. For now, Godzilla, that strangely innocent and tragic monster, has gone to Earth. Whether he returns or not, or is never seen by human eyes, the things he has taught us remain. And like I said, I think it really enhances that final scene, especially with the music that's being played and seeing all the characters react, seeing Godzilla disappear into the volcano. It actually wells up some emotion in me. It's it really does. highly contrasted, though, by the scream that Godzilla lets out 
as he or it in this movie, we're referring to him as it, uh, fall, as he's falling in, because it, it sounds like you have a balloon, like a healing balloon, and you're letting the air out of it. <laughs> and it's to, and it, like, that's another thing. Bad on purpose. Because that's not in the original movie. There's a lot of things Instead, like that. Instead, it's just balloon is air escaping. Yeah, there's a lot of things like that, really. Dubbing in things that were not there. So, Brian, I don't, I don't know if you did this, but as I was watching this one, being the MST3K fan that I am, uh, I made notes of things that I thought were unintentionally funny or were intentionally funny, but really stupid. There's a long list if you make a list of that. Yeah, it, it's not a comprehensive list. And uh, so I'm just going to kind of grab some highlights from that just to amuse myself and hopefully the rest of the listeners. Well, I mentioned before that it, it sounds like all of the men in this movie may have been dubbed by the same guy, or at least most of the male voices are dubbed by the same guy. But then there sounds are, like it. But then there are a few that kind of stand out like there's one of the older politicians toward the end of the movie when they're all holed up in the bunker during godzilla's attack and one of them was trying to tell the prime minister that something's going on the guy's voice is so high-pitched i thought to myself are you c-3po because <laughs> you sound a little bit like anthony daniels right now it's funny it's like a sixth sense you can look at the person who's talking and then you realize that's totally not their voice just by looking at them oh yeah it's just even though you've never heard their real voice, you yeah. know that it's totally not. It's probably the opposite, timber-wise, mm-hmm. tone-wise, yeah. And I'm sure that they only had to bring in one woman to do the the female characters dubbing because it's real. There's really only one, and she sounds like a twelve year old. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> My favorite scene is when Naoko is trying to force her way into the hospital room where her brother is, and she yells, "Let me!" And I wrote in my notes, or I'll huff and puff and blow your house down. <laughs> yeah. I mentioned it before, but Invasion of the Neptune Men, the Mystery Science Theater episode, I think that though that is holds the record as the absolute worst, funniest dubbing I've ever seen I've ever heard in my life. Like the the voices were so off. Like high squeaky voices and deep throated voices, and it's, and it's especially all these voices. All these voices were on little kids, and so it was, it was. You could not help but laugh. I will admit, I did like the dub dialogue from the bum. I mean, the bum was already kind of funny. That was actually refreshing dubbing wise. Yeah, of uh, my favorite line is when he's when he's uh, pouring the wine at the restaurant. He says, "One for me and one for me." <laughs> <laughs> so I'll give them credit there. At least they made that funny. Well, they didn't make it funny. It was already funny. Yeah. When they, and then they were able to actually have it translate through without making it bad. Although I have to say, uh, there's a there's a couple instances where they we we've hinted at it before. You know the Godzilla scream, but there's there are a couple of instances where they added things that were just totally unnecessary, like the security guard who screams. After he spots Godzilla, because they're making it look like Godzilla steps on him. Uh That was not in the original, and it was totally unnecessary. It doesn't create any horror. It's just unintentionally funny. Of course, that might have been what they were going for. They're trying to make it funny and not scary. Right. But my absolute favorite unnecessary addition to this, at least in the dubbing, is they dubbed in an action movie one-liner for one of the fighter pilots, who I swear said nothing in the original version. But they have this, there's this close-up shot 
of him as he's pushing the buttons to fire missiles and they dub in sayonara sucker uh-huh. I'm like what it's a very big 80s really very big 80s kind of line yeah and i'm sitting there thinking that's the best you could come up with come on and then i i wrote down actually four alternatives that i mean if you're just going to be stupid cheesy about it you could have done things like this i mean you could have you know have a nice death or i got a missile with your name on it or oh how about this here's a little reference for you do you feel lucky punkzilla they could have gone that direction. <laughs> or, you know, just be really stupid and just have the pilot, you know, Adrian, as he fires the missiles. I mean, just be nonsensical about it. <laughs> but really, sayonara sucker. Is it because he's Japanese? I don't know. It's, it's cringeworthy. <laughs> it sounds like something from Godzilla 98. Oh, yeah. <laughs> sounds like somebody from there from that wrote it. But you know what all of this does to the movie? And, and this was weird. I was... I had this weird feeling and I was trying to, while I was watching this and I was trying to figure out what is this feeling? And I finally figured it out because of how new world handled this. Whenever I'm watching particularly the special effects scenes, suddenly the effects are less convincing, even though it's the exact same footage. And I finally figured out why it's because the attitude that pervades this movie creates this veneer of trashiness. The atmosphere. The atmosphere. It just totally ruins it. Mm-hmm. When in the Japanese version, I was totally along with it. But in this one, suddenly it's everything looks faker. Because when, when these movies have good atmosphere, it enhances everything else around it. And so it's just about the general environment. It's like the air you breathe. And if you're breathing just all this noxious fumes coming out of this movie, then yeah, the, this, the effects are cheapened. But as bad as... As the, those editions uh, in the dubbing were, anybody who is not Raymond Burr and any of that new footage annoys the snot out of me. In particular, as we've hinted at before, that young guy, anything he says is just incredibly stupid. He's kind of strutting around like he's a know-it-all. He makes completely inappropriate comments. Uh, at one point, he calls Godzilla Wonder Lizard and says to put a uniform on him. It's just what, <laughs> and it's the it's like the distilled expectations of, of what a what was the, what did the guy say hysterically fun yeah hysterical hysterically fun yeah hysterical the, fun that I guess that I guess that was one of the characters that was supposedly emanating that uh, energy oh and he describes the breakdown of the of international relations after the Godzilla attacks the Soviet sub as a Hollywood romance. What? <laughs> but the greatest sin that this punk commits the entire time, and this is a holdover line from that What's Up Tiger Lily version that they were originally going to do, is he says, oh, that's a great urban renewal, renewal program they've got going on there. That was the one time when I was watching this movie, I actually yelled at the screen and told the guy to shut up. <laughs> it's like, people are dying and you're making jokes about urban renewal nice job it fits with the movie i'll say that well and i love the reaction that raymond burr has to that because he just rolls his eyes and shakes his head like oh smack upside the head would have been appropriate oh yeah i would have preferred that okay with that but oh well yeah but then there's some of these other things the general is he's all blustery and cliche 
I don't like that. He complains about having a golf outing don't, interrupted. Don't the 80s movies have this kind of character in a, a lot? They do. I think that's when this started a lot was the 80s, and you have these whack job generals that are ready to push the button at any moment. And they always sound like they're like impersonating Patton or Schwarzkopf. Also, there's a point where Raymond Burr says that Godzilla is searching for something in Tokyo and they never follow up on it. That just goes along with the lackadaisical aspect of this movie. Oh, yeah. Nobody cares. And so they just throw that in there. Yep. Yeah, that's the thing. You just can't apply any. It's just shooting fish in a barrel. Something that really confuses me. New World Pictures looked at this as a B-movie, and yet they still bother to edit out what they thought were the less convincing special effects. Oh, like the our little flying monster at the beginning? Yeah, the little flying sea louse. Uh-huh. That's edited down. Mm-hmm. And it's never explained what the heck the th- thing is there for. The Japanese version makes it clear what it is. Well, and this one is this just there. This movie doesn't care about explaining it. Yeah. Anything. And then they cut out the, the life-size Godzilla foot that they used in a couple of shots. Yeah, I don't know why that's like, necessary. Yeah, I was just looking at oh, this like, wow. okay, if you see this as a B-movie, I would think you wouldn't care what the effects look like, and yet you bothered to take out the less convincing ones. There's a little bit of inconsistency there. And I could actually forgive New World uh, some of the things that they did to this movie if they were just more consistent. Yeah, they're not. So let's get to all of this stuff with the Soviets. In the previous episode, in uh, episode 21, which was about the return of Godzilla, we talked about the various issues in part three that really heated the Cold War back up. And 1983 especially was a flashpoint for conflict in the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States. And so we we discussed the things that really created a lot of anti Soviet sentiment in the United States um, for there are some really good reasons why that occurred. But with, so with this, we're, we're seeing the results of it still only we're seeing it on the American side. Yeah. Which is, which is interesting. And it's proven to be probably the most controversial change in this version of the movie. And maybe even one of the most controversial things to happen in a Godzilla movie period. Because in this one, it's not an accident. Yeah, the Soviet missile launch is not an accident. Yeah. It's not due to equipment being damaged in Godzilla's attack. In this one, it's re-edited so it looks like that Soviet officer's last act on Earth is to launch a nuclear missile. It's almost funny. Yeah, he's pretty much like, must push red button and yeah. kill. Totally different. Yeah, they even filmed... A little sequence when the the hand is reaching up and pushing the button that was made by New World that they edited in. That's how far they went. And it was open season on the Russians at this point in America. Oh yeah, and that's definitely expressed here. And that and that's the issue is that this this movie it's about Japan being independent and the United States and the Soviet Union being on either side of them. But with this, we're completely changing the orientation. Of the movie. Yeah, and the the missile launch is the biggest thing, but there's a lot of other smaller things that happen throughout this movie that are intentionally done to be anti-Soviet. Well, and then um, there are two subtitle lines in the version of this that I saw. Yeah, uh, when I watched it on VHS, yeah. there was only one subtitle line, 
But what I've figured out is that the subtitles that are in the that original VHS, which is the original print of the movie, are not accurate. A lot of them are not accurate. They were changed around by New World. So I'm thinking anybody who watched this movie and knows Russian and looking at the subtitles, they're probably getting angry because there are points where they the subtitles say the opposite of what those actors are actually saying. Right. In particular, the scene when that, that Russian officer that we had mentioned, what he was actually saying was that the Soviet government was taking the nuclear option off the table, where in this one, he's actually saying, nope, we're keeping it as a possibility. Mm-hmm. That was their decision in flagrant disregard for what the prime minister had said. Right. You don't want to show the Soviet Union backing off unilaterally. Yeah. It's also interesting that everybody in this movie either speaks English or they're dubbed. All the Japanese characters are dubbed in English, but the Soviets are not, which astonishes me a little bit because I would think you could potentially fudge around with the dialogue much more easily that way. And I wonder if they did that on purpose so they could continue to present the Soviets as the other. Bingo. That's what I thought. Obviously, if you just hear them speaking their their Russian and stuff, you know they're up to something. That's that's what the implication here is. <laughs> yeah. They're up yeah. to no good. They're in their little submarine. I see what they're up to. Hmm. Yeah. And then you have the another change is that only the Soviet Union in this version, has an orbital nuclear platform. The Americans don't. In this version, the intercept missile is launched from Kadena Air Base, Mm -hmm. which I think is intentionally done to make the Soviets look more aggressive. The young guy even brings up, not by name, but he mentions the UN Space Treaty, which the treaty, uh, the Outer Space Treaty of 1967 is what I'm assuming he's referring to. And he says, oh, wait, that platform is a violation of it. It's just all of these things, all these little things to present the, well, the how Soviets the Americans as villains. don't have any uh, missiles up there. Yeah, which I would think... It only shows the Soviet one. This decision to change the launch from an accident to, an, uh, to deliberate. I have to admit there are parts of me that are a little bit torn about it. As an American, I am willing to believe that especially when you're dealing with a, you know, with a fictional film like this, that the Russians would be the more likely of the two to disregard what the Japanese prime minister says and just launch the nuke anyway. But on the other hand, it goes against the themes and ideas of the original film, which is that both of these powers are at an impasse and don't know what to do because this is all happening on Japanese soil. Well, this movie just ended up mirroring American foreign policy. Instead, it's us using Japan as a bastion against the Soviet Union, when in fact Japan in this movie is just wanting to be itself. And that's not something that translates over well into an American context. Well, I was also wondering if this this sort of plot line was done in an American film and the, the Soviets disregarded everyone else's wishes and did exactly the same thing that they did here. Would I be accepting of it? And I found myself thinking, yeah, I would. And then I started feeling a little bit hypocritical about it. <laughs> Speaking of the disappointment that the creators of this movie might have had after they, after seeing this version, it makes me think that the number, the number of movies that are after this, they seem to be made more for 
a Japanese audience than an international audience. And I think maybe the experience with this movie was one of the things that, that drove that. Because this movie, was they put so much into it, and then it just got bought for a pretty low price, and then it just got ruined, and it undermined everything they were trying to do. So if I were them, at that point I just would have said, okay, fine, we made a mistake by trying to mess around with, with translating these movies over to uh, the United States and to international audiences. And given this experience, I, I'd, be pretty, I'd be pretty jaded about the process. The disappointment would have affected my decision-making about how to go ahead in the future. I think that's a, a reasonable hypothesis to make, Brian. And it's so I guess in a lot of ways we have Roger Corman and New World Pictures to thank for some of the things that we're going to be getting in the rest of the Heisei films. Such a memorable name if you're a Mystery Science Theater fan, definitely. That concludes part two of the podcast. Let's move on to our related topics. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, we cover issues that were either brought up by the film or were going on in Japan at the time the film was released. So our topics for this time are the Japanese asset price bubble, Japan Airlines Flight 123, and the 1986 Chernobyl disaster. The Japanese asset price bubble is something that, if you're discussing Japan in this era, the 1980s and 90s, this is an impossible topic to avoid. It created in what many believe to be uh, the lost decade and, and, and some would say the last two decades, totaling uh, 20 years. After this movie was released, the 1985 film, 1986 was about when the asset price bubble started, and it went all the way until 1991. And it was a rather extraordinary series of events, and it seems like one leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. In a previous episode, I mentioned Endaka, and, and what that is. And it's the Japanese word for uh, a, dis- a description of the appreciation of the Japanese yen, the Japanese currency. So this is generally considered to be quite harmful. And it is because Japan's economy is heavily export-based. Also in a previous episode, I mentioned how the trade deficit between the United States and Japan flipped and how the United States started having a significant trade deficit to Japan on a yearly basis. So from 85 to 86, we had what was called the Andaka Recession, and it was a brief recession, and it was uh, related to the appreciation of the Japanese yen, and that blew a hole in exports because nobody wants to buy higher-priced exports compared when doing uh, the currency conversion. They want cheaper goods, and that's why uh, having the Japanese yen to be low, and at a time it was pegged for the dollar, too, you want to have a low currency because you want to be able to sell more of your product. Very simple. And this is when we get to the Bank of Japan. And this is where we get our, our real thing that kicks off what, what, what comes. Because the Bank of Japan reduced interest rates. And the Bank of Japan can use raising and lowering interest rates accordingly to affect the money supply. And so what are you going to do if the Japanese yen, if you don't want it to appreciate anymore, what are you going to do? You're going to want to increase the money supply. And then that, because there's more of the currency around, 
then the value of that currency isn't as high. And that was the lever that the BOJ could use to affect the money supply. So how do you get out of the Endocker recession? You lower interest rates, increase the money supply, and then that pulls you out of the recession. This is very simple. However, the results of this probably ended up being nearly catastrophic. So what these low interest rates did is it made it easier for individuals and for companies to get more money and to get more credit. As, uh, as a result of this, around 1988, the rate of growth on these increased close to 14% on a year-on-year basis by the time you got to 1989. So it's a, a giant jump. And then when you have loans increased, you have more debt, which that is isn't very good from that end, obviously, because when you're loaning, then, then somebody's going to be going into debt. Then a lot of people, they got this loan money and as well as businesses, and they invested in land and they invested in stocks. And so this money was taken out and then thrown into these two conduits. And then at that point, the price of stocks went up because more people were buying them, and then the price of land went way up, and the scarcity of land went way up as a result. And so land became a very direct investment tool. So because of the low taxes on on owning land and the high taxes on land transactions, and then coupled that with the lax application of regulations on these things, it was commonly expected that agricultural land would be converted to residential use. So stuff that you see seen used in the urban centers in Japan. They were regarded by landowners as, quote, institutional benefits, end quote, and, quote, rents, end quote, and accelerated the land prices. And that also accelerated speculation of land prices, which drove the prices even higher. So we're talking all of land prices going up, commercial office space, residential land, and especially in urban areas, but also industrial land. Tokyo and Osaka seem to have been the hot spots, definite for the, for the largest, most dramatic increases in land prices. And then after that, in the Tokyo, inside Tokyo, the central part of the city, once that was speculated to the hilt, then what happened? It went out to the various prefectures in the metropolitan area of Tokyo, and then all the speculation and all the movement started going to there. Another feeding mechanism to this whole thing is definitely the fact that people used the land that they were buying as collateral in more investments. And so we're, we're, all of this energy is going into the bubble at, the, at this point. So we have numerous things that are feeding this bubble that is growing. But at the end of the day, one of the biggest triggers for these bubbles that occur was monetary policy. It was the BOJ lowering interest rates to the point that it let all of this money, cheap money out into the system. And then that is what ended up creating the bubble. Then there's the little rule in the, uh, in the tax system that was really bizarre that I found was that about inheritance taxes being so ridiculously high, like 70, 75%. Are you kidding? And the appraisal of land for tax purposes was really weird because they, they would estimate the property value, but then they would take into account the amount of money that someone borrowed and it would be subtracted from that. So people were borrowing money 
why? So that they could have that deducted from there. It sounds like wow. a terribly archaic law. It's, it's, it sounds like an awful idea. But this, what is that? What did that do? It fueled more wanting to have more debt, which fueled more borrowing. Yeah. Which then fueled the bubble even more because there was more money that keeps flowing out into the supply. And uh, yeah, wow. I just, it, there are a lot of things that are flowing into this, but this is how economic crashes work. A lot, sometimes you can see it coming from a mile away. And, and this is one of those things that, that the BOJ started seeing things coming and they knew that they needed to start raising interest rates. So once you have your bubble created, how is it going to pop? And it was probably the raising of the interest rates that did it. That was when that it first hit stocks and then the stocks, it hit land. And then because land was what all of a lot of that stock price increase was built off of was people using the land as collateral for stock purchases. So it, the, the stocks get first, then the land gets hit and then things really go bad. And this bubble it for bubbles. I mean, there are a lot of bubbles in uh, economies that last a lot longer than this did. This was over and done with uh, in seven years. Six years, it's not very long. Because by the end of 1992, that was when everything uh, finished exploding. So in 1990, what happened? The stock market tanked, right? Yep. Bubble burst, and the era of the economic miracle ended, and then we got into the beginning of the first lost decade. Yeah, I'd say the lost decade, and then um, I think now in some of the, some of the informational hierarchy it's being referred to as long it's generally longer than a decade and it's in a, a period of low growth of gdp and uh depressed consumer confidence and a lot, lot of other uh, a lot of other things that came out of this we will be that we'll be discussing too yeah because these will uh continue to snowball uh, as time goes on and will affect the subsequent godzilla movies deflation along with Low consumption also uh, hurt this. And also in, in 1989, that was when the consumption tax was first introduced. And then a year later, the, the stock market price completely tanks. And, and so there's all of these things coming together at once in, in and around uh, 1990, 1991. Uh, very uh, disastrous to look at on paper. If you want to look at the graph of the Nikkei average, uh, go ahead and look at that. But it's rather catastrophic looking. Yeah, the, when I was looking up stuff on this particular topic, uh, almost every graph that I looked at, if it was something negative, everything just drops, right, in 1989, or if it's showing something uh, po you know, negative in reverse, you know, like if bad things were happening, it would go the opposite direction. In 89 is the big crossroads. It's like the cartoon where they have the, the row of patients in the beds in the big room, and then there's that little graph that's taped on the front of the bed, and it has the the graph that goes like straight down yep. towards the end tanks. We'll be talking more about the economy of Japan and, and what happened after the asset price bubble burst and, and such as the lost decade and, and things like that. We'll explain some more about that, but th this is definitely the time we wanted to actually get the asset price bubble discussed because it's so important to a lot of stuff that happens in Japan after 1990 or so. 
And I just want to say, uh, listeners, that having Brian around to talk about these economic issues has been a tremendous asset on this podcast because he, he very much has a mind for understanding these things and being able to translate it for everyone. Before we move away from uh, from economics, as usual, a Kaiju Vision radio podcast wouldn't be complete without economic figures for the year for Japan. So during the bubble, in 1985, 6.33% growth. 1986, 2.83%. 1987, 4.10%. 1988, which is probably about the peak of the bubble and the land prices, 7.14%, which is gigantic. We have a few more years where there's some growth, and then after, and then after the stock market price crash and the land price crash, that is where we start experiencing some numbers that are way less, and that's where we start having near zero percent GDP growth for a number of uh, years. Our next topic is Japan Airlines Flight 123. Uh, this is a a crash that I've been very familiar with. I'm one of my little hobbies is just watching the documentaries and reading the history about aviation. Uh, my father was in the Air Force Reserve. Flight 123 is ranked very high up there. It's the worst single plane crash in the, as far as death toll in, in history still. The only more disastrous crash would definitely be the uh, Tenerife accident in the 70s, which uh, occurred in the Canary Islands. But that was two planes. This was one. And by the way, this accident occurred August 12th, 1985, just about a week and a half before this a film, this Americanized version of the movie was released. We're talking about 15 crew members and 509 passengers, all of whom died in this in this crash. Now, weirdly enough, there were four who survived for a short time after the crash but they eventually succumb to their injuries. There are a lot of videos and there are a lot of documentaries on YouTube and everywhere else to, to learn more about this accident, but it, this really affected the Japanese psyche really heavily, especially the more you learn about how bad this accident was and especially the emotional and physical stresses that it put on the passengers. Basically, the accident, we're not going to you, you can research the accident, but... Essentially, what occurred was there was a repair that was faulty. And it happened seven years before the accident, too. Yeah, so the, the cabin was pressurized and unpressurized a whole bunch of times, back and forth. Uh, and But finally, it gave. And what it did was it, it caused rapid decompression, and it ripped off a whole bunch of the back of the plane there, including the vertical stabilizer. And as a result, the plane became almost ex- completely uncontrollable. And at this point... It went into, we were looking up the terms of this, a fugoid pattern. Yeah. And, and so it's it's like... It looks kind of like a sine wave, almost. Well, only, only hellacious. Yeah. <laughs> or like a really nasty roller coaster. Yeah. You, you go way down really, really fast, and then you pull up really hard, and then it turns around and it goes up, and then it slows down as it's going up, and then it, it is just like a roller coaster going down. And uh, it was 32 minutes. I know. That's probably the most horrific thing, or one of the most horrific things to think about with this accident, is that went on for 32 minutes. Yeah, and so it gave time for passengers to 
write letters to their families with their own blood. This is a very, very horrific thing. Even a few minutes, if you're in a plane crash, feels like forever. Because just about everything that you're going through when it's painful and distressing, it feels a lot longer than it is uh, when you actually have a stopwatch. And so 32 minutes feels just like an eternity. I can't imagine having to go through this. But this was a this had a, a lot of effects on how the Japanese viewed air travel as well as how they viewed Japan Airlines. Uh, Boeing ended up taking responsibility, even though the people who cleared the aircraft were with the airline itself. But Boeing isn't going to turn around and trash the people they're selling their built their planes to, and so uh, Boeing helped take the fall for that. But Japan Airlines ended up taking the the brunt of the distrust anyway. Yeah, in fact, their numbers right after this, a number of passengers for their domestic flights dropped by one third. And then Japan Airlines ended up paying out $7.6 million in condolence money to families of the victims. While not admitting responsibility necessarily. Yeah. But they did, uh, they did uh, distribute that money. And the airline's president, Yasumoto Takagi, ended up resigning over this. But that was mild by comparison to what happened to a couple of other people who were working for the airline. One was Hiru Tominaga. He was a maintenance manager. And then you had Susumu Tajima, who was an engineer, and he's the one who inspected and cleared the aircraft. And both of them ended up committing suicide because of this. Here's an interesting thing for you, Brian. You know the the story about uh, the, the people call it the day the music died? Uh-huh. Yeah, that famous plane crash. Yeah, where you had the three, uh, like Richie Valens and a couple of other guys who died in that plane wreck. Something like that actually happened here with this flight as well. There was a, a singer named Kyu Sakamoto, and he was the first Asian recording artist to have a number one song on the Billboard Hot 100 in June 1963. He was on this plane. Yeah, there were a, a number of uh, famous or relatively famous people on this flight. I mean, mm-hmm. it was a it was a very busy domestic flight, very huge plane that was engineered to hold a lot more people even. And so it was, a, and it was from Tokyo to Osaka, the two biggest cities. So mm-hmm. it was very heavily traveled. Yeah. You also had the, the president of the Hanshin Tigers Professional Baseball Club. That was a Hajimu Nakano, a banker named Akahisa Yukawa. And then the father of solo violinist Diana Yukawa. And he died on this plane a month before she was born. Interestingly, the American military forces who were stationed on Japan, if they were nearby where the plane was, they were monitoring things as they were going. And then it was actually an American helicopter that spotted the the crash site first. But the JSDF uh, told them that they would handle all of the rescue efforts. And which put the the Americans at a bit of an impasse. And nobody knows who gave the order to for them to disengage. Yeah, I know. That's really interesting. But the and like this was realized as a mistake immediately after where it's like okay, there are people that we could have possibly even saved that might have still been alive. And it's it's really sad because had they acted a bit faster and gotten there a little bit sooner, they probably could have saved a lot of those people. Yeah. Anybody who was alive after the crash occurred, it it should have been 
everything should have been done possible in order to save those lives. And instead, all this procedure and hemming and hawing back and forth ended up being a problem with that. Thankfully, we have fixed that in a lot of ways. I mean, especially with the 311 disaster, there were American authorities that were trying to coordinate with the Japanese as soon as as soon as the disaster occurred in, in order to try to assist. And so this was a, a lesson that I think that all the uh, people involved uh, learned a lot from. A very hard lesson, unfortunately. The next thing we're going to talk about is the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, which occurred April 26, 1986. And this is one of only two nuclear disasters in history to be classified as a level seven accident by the International Nuclear Event Scale. Guess what the other one is? Fukushima. We're not going to go into every detail about Chernobyl, but uh, we are going to discuss like how just how this disaster affected things on a more macro scale. We know what it did to the area around it and how many mm-hmm. thousands of years it's going to take before it, the radiation stops. But this galvanized the anti-nuclear movement again. I mean, we already talked about Three Mile Island. I mean, this was way more. Yeah. So just to put it into perspective, Three Mile Island, which is the worst nuclear disaster in U.S. history, was a level five on this scale that we mentioned. This accident, unsurprisingly, revived a lot of anti-nuclear sentiment and a lot of anti-nuclear movements all over the world, really. In fact, just a month after the accident... There was an event that was held all across the country that was called the National Day of Nuclear Protest. There were protests held in 35 U.S. cities in response to the Chernobyl disaster. One of the more noteworthy ones was there were 1,200 protesters who marched to a churchyard across from the Seabrook Nuclear Power Plant in Seabrook, New Hampshire. 83 of them blockaded the plant's gate with their bodies and balls of tangled wire and then 74 of that 1,200 were arrested by the police. And this also caused demonstrations in Japan. I mean, this was all over the world. And this also helped to put even yet another nail in the coffin of the industry that was trying to build more nuclear plants because this uh, definitely did not um, work very well for the nuclear industry, even though Chernobyl was a pretty crappy plant. And uh, they they really didn't uh, go by uh, safety regulations, nor did they follow the right procedures when the meltdown started happening, which a lot of that was on a media blackout because of the uh, the communist Soviet state trying to uh, suppress it. In terms of casualties and cost, it is the biggest nuclear disaster in history currently. Think of it like this. Not only was this a level seven disaster, but currently this is the nuclear disaster that has the highest casualty count and the and the the greatest cost. To put it into perspective, the efforts to to make to do the decontamination and to safeguard against other potential scenarios, some of which would be as great or greater than than the disaster itself, and also some of them are falsely perceived to be likely scenarios to have occurred cost 18 billion rubles the as for the body count for uh, for this particular accident there were two deaths caused by the blast 134 people were hospitalized including 28 firefighters and plant employees who eventually died from acute radiation syndrome and then there were 14 cancer deaths over the next 10 years that were attributed to this uh, attributed to the accident 
And then amongst the population, the wider population around the plant, there have been 15 thyroid cancer deaths connected back to it as of 2011. And that's just directly, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because this threw lots of nuclear material into the atmosphere. And as we discussed before in our Megalon episode, there's already lots of nuclear fallout material in the atmosphere, floating around in the atmosphere because of all the nuclear tests. And the area that the uh, nuclear plant melted down around, uh, that won't be, that would be radioactive until uh, 20,000 years from now? Something like that. There's a lot we could go into about Chernobyl. I mean, all you have to do is just mention the name Chernobyl and people at least have a basic idea of what you're talking about. It's a huge event in history, particularly a huge event in modern history. It's become part of international pop culture, really, in a lot of ways. If you want to have a quick and easy way to talk about a nuclear disaster, all you have to say is, oh, it'll be like Chernobyl. So if this is something that you find interesting, we do highly recommend that you go and look this stuff up because there's a lot of very interesting information related to it, how the accident occurred and the changes that have come about because of it, particularly in the nuclear industry. I think the anti-nuclear sentiment we see expressed in this movie, in Return of Godzilla, I think that has a lot to do with the Chernobyl and just how it reignited the anti-nuclear movement. And so that's why we have Japan expressing those views so explicitly. And it's interesting to, to look at this. I mean, we're talking about an Americanized version of this movie. And thanks to things like Three Mile Island and Chernobyl, we're seeing that this sentiment is not just a Japanese thing. It's shared by a lot of people. We're talking about an accident that occurred in Ukraine and people all over the world were talking about it. And we're really questioning if nuclear power was something that they should be investing in. When, when it goes bad, it goes really bad. Well, as much as we don't really care for this movie all that much, uh, we are going to have a, a break now for a few more years where there aren't any Godzilla movies. And then we're going to be seeing one again in 1989. Which we will be discussing next time on Kaiju Vision Radio with Godzilla vs. Biollante. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Brian Scherschel, and I edited this podcast. And I'm Nathan Marchant, and I'm the podcast webmaster. Sayonara! Sayonara!